This is what life has sounded like in Gaza over the past 10 weeks. That's what it has taken to reduce the enclave to rubble, decimating houses, hospitals, schools, power plants, and entire neighborhoods. Some, while people, are still inside. Thousands remain under rubble. Nearly 20,000 Palestinians have been killed. The majority of them are women and children. Over 50,000 people are wounded, and around 1,000 children have lost one or both their legs. These are the figures we know right now, but the reality is much more frightening. 1.8 million people out of Gaza's population of 2.2 million, that's 80%, have been displaced. Not even anywhere safe, because nowhere is safe. Nearly half of Gazans are starving, according to the World Food Programme. Not nearly enough aid is going into the Strip, and when it gets in, it's still difficult to distribute to the people. This week, I was at the closest point anyone can get near Gaza at this time, Al-Arish city in Egypt, near the Rafah border crossing. The whole aid process is complicated. The UN Security Council is trying to issue a resolution for a halt in hostilities, to enable critically needed assistance to go through. But this has been complicated too. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. In this episode, we'll look at the problems with getting aid from trucks to the hands of the people that need it the most. For Gazans, getting access to aid is now a matter of life and death. They have been jumping onto aid trucks to secure what little they can get to feed their families. The aid makes a long journey from Al-Arish military airport in Egypt, where it's being flown in from around the world. There's more than enough to go around if it ever goes in. From Al-Arish, it goes out for inspection, where it's either accepted or rejected. Some of the items are rejected because Israel considers them dual purpose, as one NGO worker told me. These items could be essentials, especially during the winter. Things like tents, which contain metal poles. I was just at Al-Arish airport. There's a real willingness by the Egyptians to help, whether by evacuating people from inside for treatment to places like the UAE or to facilitate the entry of aid. But the aid itself is piling up because the Rafah border crossing, which opened on October 21st, is only made for pedestrians and not hundreds of trucks. So inspections aren't actually done there. They're done in Karam Abu Salim crossing, which has been recently opened. NGOs are hoping hundreds of trucks will be allowed in. But even if they do go through, the amount of destruction and the need is so desperate and dire, it would take more than 500 trucks of aid a day to make even a dent in the overall situation. I've spoken to Ahmed Bayram from the Norwegian Refugee Council to know why the process of distributing the aid inside Gaza is so tricky. The aid operation is, is very difficult and, and it, it does take place in, in some of the most difficult, most dangerous, most deadly circumstances, really. Uh, I mean, these people on the ground are doing such an impossible job to bring aid to people. Uh, we have huge, huge problems. For example, I mean, the, the attacks on, on, on schools and shelters and, and areas that are operated by by UN agencies. Uh, we have issues related to the movement of our teams. Sometimes these decisions to stop, uh, suspend aid in some areas 
and to prioritize areas over other areas due to the security situation. These, and on top of coordination between all NGOs, so that we're not duplicating, we're not giving, you know, the same aid to um, the same people, while others can't don't have access to to the same aid. He's saying that there is an unprecedented level of need and desperation in Gaza. The hunger, even among Gazans who have managed to flee the war, is easily noticeable. Even when the food is available, you find Gazans rationing what they have. This was my experience aboard a flight from Al Arish to Abu Dhabi with 61 wounded and sick Gazans and their 71 companions. The food and snacks kept flowing, but I saw them storing it for later rather than consuming it on the spot. It's a mentality that's difficult to break away from after you've seen what they've seen. But it's not just the lack of food that's the problem. It's also the constant movement of people. Remember, 1.8 million people have left their homes. Here's Ahmed again on how displacement is making it tougher for aid groups to distribute what little aid is coming in. This is the reality of aid provision in, in Gaza. You don't know if your aid is when or if it will ever make it to, to the people who need it because of the violence. People, people keep moving around Gaza. We have seen multiple displacements, second, third, fourth and fifth displacement movements, which makes it even more difficult for, for targeting you know, these, these groups. We're talking about almost every single uh, civilian in Gaza in need of aid, and that, that does add to the pressure uh, we have seen, there, there have been examples of, of communications uh, getting cut off. We still live through that. And then you have to do everything manually. You have to send people to go find their colleagues at the same time while they look for their families. It is, it, it can get, um, even, it, it is very difficult and for people uh, for people who are on the ground providing aid while at the same time having to check on their families every every so often. Other than food and clean water, families in Gaza now don't even have access to essential everyday things like blankets to keep them warm in the cold and rainy weather, mattresses to sleep on, pillows, kitchen utensils, personal hygiene and sanitary products for women. Even if there was to be a ceasefire tomorrow, we are talking about two million people, over two million people in desperate need for all sorts of, of support and help. So um, what we are seeing in, in, in Gaza today on our screens from violence to displacement, that will have a lot of... More desperately needed humanitarian aid could be allowed in when a ceasefire is agreed or at least a UN resolution is passed for a halt in hostilities in Gaza. But the UN Security Council hasn't been able to reach an agreement. Here's what the head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees told the national news in Rafah earlier this month. We have to work on the ceasefire. There is no doubt. Uh, we, on, on Friday, it was, uh, it was a big uh, uh, disappointment. It's uh, outrageous that we still have to wait, especially for the people under the bombardment. But meanwhile, we need uh, to significantly increase uh, commodities going into Gaza. We need to open Karim Shalom. We need commercial uh, flow. But on the ground in Gaza, the UN says the healthcare system has been decimated, with only six out of the entire Gaza Strip's 
36 hospitals still functioning. By functioning, we mean that the hospitals have been turned into makeshift displacement centers, where in some cases, like the Palestinian Red Crescent-run Al-Amal Hospital, people are literally lying on the floor. Hundreds share one bathroom and people are sleeping on hospital steps. Surgeries are being conducted under flashlight and people are undergoing procedures without anesthesia. Last week, the World Health Organization passed an emergency motion to secure more medical access, seeking passage into Gaza for medical personnel and supplies to alleviate the burden on local teams who are past their breaking point. For more details, I've spoken to Steve Sozabi from the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. Basically, the situation on the ground is controlled by the Israelis and the Egyptians as far as access of personnel, including medical personnel who can provide support and assistance insofar as treating injured patients and relieving the exhausted local doctors. That's not possible at the moment for the most part, except for a few exceptions with field hospitals. In addition to that, getting material aid in is also under the control of the Israelis and the Egyptians, and that's highly monitored and extremely difficult to do. The situation on the ground is extremely dangerous for all of our staff who are living in areas that are being bombed, and many of them are living as internally displaced persons and are not safe. We've had several of our injured cases that we've treated in the past in the United States or other places killed, including a 13-year-old girl yesterday. And this is the reality of working on the ground there. To say life in Gaza has been disrupted is an understatement. There is no life in Gaza, even for the living. A Gazan mother who was accompanying her amputee son for treatment in Abu Dhabi told me Gazans are becoming delirious. Their norms and traditions have been completely turned upside down, she says. Nothing is clear anymore, even for the people there. Infrastructure, roads, bridges, and civilian facilities are destroyed or blocked by Israeli forces. The civil defense and paramedics aren't even able to access areas that have been struck to rescue people, pull them out from under the rubble, or give them medical attention. Several times during communication blackouts, ambulances have followed the sights and sounds of shelling just to find the injured. The immediate need for help as the war continues is incredibly important. But equally so is the need to plan ahead. Back to Steve from the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. You know, there's a huge amount of need, not just now, in Gaza. Obviously, people are facing an existential crisis of life and death, able to um, provide immediate, urgent humanitarian support is absolutely critical. But we have to also think about the long-term development and planning that's required for Gaza to rehabilitate the lives of tens of thousands of children who've been significantly damaged and impaired as a result of this terrible um, crisis over the past nearly three months, um, two and a half months. Um, the mental health, the physical, the rehabilitation, the education, the social support, it's just beyond the scope of what currently is being prepared for. So we need new, fresh thinking, new, fresh strategies, new, fresh uh, programs and projects and ideas and interventions. They're going to take on the healing of Gaza's young generation 
who are being right now destroyed through violence and uprooting them from their lives and from their uh, what are were already extremely limited opportunities to have a life. And, uh, and I'm committed to, to doing that kind of work. We've been speaking to residents in Gaza who said they will need months to rebuild their lives again with more than 300,000 homes either damaged or destroyed since October 7. These are just the numbers available at first glimpse, but we will unfortunately never know the true extent of the human and physical toll in Gaza until the smoke clears. This episode was produced by Dua Farid and Phil Green, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. <laughs>